You're listening to The 66, a podcast where we go through the books of the Bible one at a time in a three-step process. We read, think, and apply the biblical text. And today, it's kind of a bittersweet episode, I guess. We're in our final episode on Jeremiah. And when we get through with a book like this, a really long one, or any kind of series, I think it's good because I think we're ready to move on to something else. Yeah. And if you've been listening the whole way through, I'm sure you're kind of ready to move on. But at the same time, it's like, man, you know, I feel like I'm finally getting a grasp on this thing, and now we're having to move on to something different. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I think this may be our longest series. I'm I'm not sure. I mean, we've certainly done some almost this long. We did, didn't we do thir- Did we do thirteen on John? Yeah, we did 13. twelve or thirteen. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we have done this, and and if we do this for every book of the Bible, we're going to be doing this for many, many years. Oh yeah. Uh, so we don't intend to spend this long on every book, but I mean, give us a break. There's fifty-two chapters here. Right. So yeah, I think we've done pretty good. Uh, fifty-two we, chapters in thirteen yeah, we, weeks. We've surveyed the book. And that's what we set out to do. And I, I think we've gone maybe a little deeper than a survey may go. Yeah, and if we want to, I think certainly if we're going to err on too deep or too shallow, we definitely want to err on having too much, I yeah. think, is the better thing to do there. Because, Andrew, when when we get done with the 66th book, what are we going to do after that? I mean, I don't know. we have no Retire. plan after that. Yeah. So we might ought to think about stretching this out. Yeah. As long as possible. That's true, yeah. Uh, so great news for listeners, I'm sure. We're gonna it's gonna take us even longer to wade through the stuff we're doing. Uh but for our final episode, what we're going to do is we've got chapters thirty and thirty one uh to study today, and we realize that's not the final two chapters of the book. Uh but last week, if you listened to our previous episode on on uh, Jeremiah then you know we finished the storyline of Jeremiah. The narrative is over with, and that's why we're doing 30 and 31 to finish up today. It really uh, ties it up nicely. Last week we talked about how Judah had finally been wiped out. Babylon has finally come in and taken everyone captive, uh, and we ended there with some shifts in power. And uh, But basically the future does not look good for Judah. And chapters 30 and 31, uh, they really sum up, I guess, the hope that is coming in the future. And that's why we wanted to close with this, uh, to give it that view towards the New Testament. Yeah, it's a very hopeful part of the book. And it shows, it kind of challenges the conventional thinking on the book of Jeremiah, which is that it's all doom and gloom. And we call it the book of the weeping prophet. And uh, Jeremiah is not weeping here. He's getting a good night's sleep as we'll see in a moment, and um, you know, feeling good about the future despite the terrible present that he's living through. Uh, we struggled with the outline on this because there were so many ways to go through this very rich material. In fact, uh, we talked about the fact that of all the sets of chapters we've been through, this may be the richest of all of them and maybe our favorite. I, I really think we wound up ending on a high note here what what we decided to do is to first give you the textual outline. In other words, outline the way Jeremiah outlined it. And then we're going to give you an instructional outline that will expedite the our process through this book and kind of right. aid the understanding. And so but but we felt bad not giving you the textual outline because there's something pretty interesting about it. Um it's just in two parts really. And the first part begins in chapter thirty, verse one and goes through the Uh, chapter 31, verse 26, and uh, that is Jeremiah's dream. Now, he doesn't tell you at the beginning that he's dreaming, but in verse 26, we have this, you know, of chapter 31, we have this really interesting note that he gives us, at this I awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. I doubt Jeremiah had many good nights of sleep especially when he's sleeping in stocks or in a cistern or in a prison, in a dungeon, or just in the city of Jerusalem in general. Mm -hmm. But this particular night, he had a good night's sleep. And so that first section, chapter 30, verse 1 through 31, verse 26, 
is a dream that he had, and we're going to go through that material later. And then the second part of it is chapter 31, verses 27 through 40, which is, we'll call it a sermon that Jeremiah gave. Uh, and It's a sermon, we're calling it a sermon because it's got three nice points that all begin with the phrase, Behold, the days are coming. You see that phrase in verse 31, then you see it again and again. And so, um, you know, those three sections kind of stack up this way. Uh, first of all, he says, Days are coming when it will be time to build and plant. That's chapter 31, verses 27 through 30. And that recalls the very beginning of this book, you know, whenever the Lord called him into the work of prophecy. And he said, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but he says it's time to destroy, uh, to mm -hmm. pluck up, and to build and to plant. Right. And he's calling him to do those things. And so Jeremiah is having, you know, he's having thoughts about the building part, which we haven't seen a whole lot of. Mm -hmm. The second part begins in verse 31. He says, the days are coming, secondly, when the Lord will make a new covenant. That's verses 31 through 34. And the final point is, the days are coming when the holy city will be rebuilt, verses 35 to the end of the chapter. So you have Jeremiah's dream and Jeremiah's sermon. That's the way the text breaks down. But we wanted to give you an instructional outline. In other words, we're going to skip around a little bit to kind of aid the understanding of this material because it is very yeah. dense. It's, you know kind of difficult in places and yeah it's uh, we, hard to take it as if we try and usually i think we try and do it textual yeah just we to try keep to, it yeah. together but it's really hard i mean if you read it um if you want to hit pause and go read it for yourself all the way through it's very difficult to take the dream now the sermon outlines nicely uh but they all kind of you know borrow from each other i guess there's not yeah, really the a dream nice and the need. sermon are on the same material yeah so that's why we kind of took it to make it this instructional thing. Um, and Drew, before you get into that, I think 31 verse 28 sums it up pretty nicely. Uh, really the whole text, but definitely um, from this instructional outline. Verse 28 of 31 says, It shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant declares the Lord. So just kind of tugging on the coattails of what you just said, um, he brings up the past and also looks to the future. Yeah, we've come full circle from our first episode. Mm -hmm. And uh, this would have made a good chapter 52, not to question the Holy Spirit here. Right. Uh, he chose to put it, present the material as he wanted to, and the book actually ends with the fate of Jehoiachin. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, this maybe is a good second choice. Because chapter 1 talks about this destroying and planting, and, and here we have it refrained in chapter 31. Well, let's uh, get into this instructional outline. And it basically is in three parts. Number one, what God did. Number two, what God is doing. And when we say is doing and talking about the present time, we're talking about Jeremiah's present time, not ours. Mm -hmm. And then thirdly, what God will do in the future. So let's start with what God did, and that takes us to chapter 31, verses 2 and 3, which is a memory of, of God's uh, acts in the past, in the days of Moses, going way back. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. I want you to think about the Sinai wilderness there. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away, I have loved you, see the past tense, with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. You know, what they can expect in the future is not based on some thin hope or blind faith, but upon something real that he has done for their forefathers mm -hmm. in the past. And so that's a very important thing to set up. Now let's move secondly to what God is doing. And as I said, this is present-day Jeremiah, not present-day, our day, 21st century. And there's a lot here that describes a lot of the things that we've kind of read about in other places, but uh, the way it's worded here and some of, the, some of the analogies that are made are just so interesting. I'll start in chapter 30 as a part of the dream, verse 4. 
These are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, we have heard a cry of panic, of terror, and no peace. Remember, some of the teachers are saying, peace, peace, right. when there is no peace. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why is every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great. There is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. I really like that. Yeah, I do too. I, you know, the, the idea kind of, of funny, actually. You know, birth pangs is used a lot in the Old and New Testaments to describe, you know, labor before something great happens. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the question has never been asked except here. Mm-hmm. Why are you guys walking around like you're about to have a baby? Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. just kind of funny, but also very, very serious. Right. Um, skip down to verse 23 of chapter 30. And again, you hear, you read some more present-day stuff. Behold the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intentions of his mind. In the latter days, you will understand this. I chose that out of all the possible readings I could have done from present day because of the words, until and the word accomplished. Uh, This is not an unending punishment or a final punishment. It has a purpose and it has an end marked by those two words. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know you told me you like the phrase, the storm of the Lord. Yeah. Um, Let's go over to chapter 31, verse 15. And you have some more interesting imagery here, an analogy to Rachel, one of the patriarch's wives, uh, Jacob's favorite wife. Uh, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Now, if you'll remember from a previous podcast, Ramah was the holding place that all the Jews were being brought to before deportation. Where Uh, Jeremiah made his choice to stay around. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Jeremiah was asked, you know, okay, here it is. Are you going to stay in Jerusalem or will you go to Babylon? And he was one of the few that was given the choice to do that, and he chose to stay in Jerusalem. But there you can imagine what the weeping and lamentation was like for those people who had no choice and were being forced away from their homes and maybe separated from their families or they had just lost their families in in the war. And he says, Rachel is weeping for her children. I believe Rachel was buried in Ramah. Uh, Ramah was a very important place in Israel. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. He says, um, They shall come back from the land of the enemy, that is Babylon. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. I have heard Ephraim grieving. Ephraim is often used in place of the northern kingdom, Israel. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I relented, and after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed, and I was confounded, because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. You know, it's very different from the angry God we picture when we approach the book of Jeremiah. Right. Uh, Verse 21, he says, Set up road markers for yourselves. Make yourselves guideposts. Consider well the highway, that is the road by which you went. Return, O virgin Israel. Return to these your cities. How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing on the earth, a woman encircles a man. Uh, so these guideposts are set up along the road back to Jerusalem, and the repentance will lead to their, uh, the spiritual return, if you will, will lead right. to their physical return to their homeland. So even in the dark days of the present time, you hear a lot of hope. But then we get to the third part of this outline, which is what God will do, what, what's coming in the future. And we've got four points under this, starting with, number one, a new start. Go back to chapter 30, the first few verses there, and this is introduced. 
Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you, for behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. So we're talking here when we say a new start about what is commonly referred to as the restoration of Israel, the subject of our podcast on Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Uh, after 70 years in captivity, and this is predicted by Jeremiah, they would return from Babylon to go back to Jerusalem. There are about 70,000 Jews, it has been estimated, that have been taken, displaced from their homeland, and uh, they're, they're going to get to come home. Verse 8 says, It shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke, that's the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, or the yoke of Babylon, from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him. So the slavery will end, freedom will be the result. In chapter 31, verse 23, this new start is um, described this way. Uh, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, once more they shall use these words in the land of Judah, and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill. And Judah and all its cities shall dwell there together, and the farmers and those who wander with their flocks. For I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. replenish. And uh, finally, let's read the last few verses of the chapter, where a description is given of the rebuilding of the city. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The measuring line shall go farther straight to the hill Garib and shall then turn to Goa, the whole valley of the dead bodies and ashes, that may be the the valley of Hinnom, and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the house gate towards the east shall be sacred to the Lord. It shall not be uprooted or overthrown anymore forever. Um... That's, I'm told, a counterclockwise description of the boundaries of the city of Jerusalem. So you have there a promise of a new start in the future. Uh, Secondly, you have a promise of a new era, a new time. And this is in the future, and this is indicated by a phrase that's repeated over and over again, and you've heard us use it, the days are coming. I think the first time you see it's in verse 3 of chapter 30. uh, For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. But he repeats it again in verse 24 of that chapter. And then in chapter 31, it appears four times. Uh, Thirdly, you have a new king. And uh, this would be the Messiah, of course, Jesus of Nazareth. And uh, you see him pop up in verse 9 of chapter 30 in Jeremiah's dream, where he reads, They shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Um, You know, that's an interesting thing because one of the kings, and I can't remember, Andrew, exactly who it was, but one of the kings was told, none of your sons will uh, reign in this land again, or reign this land again. And uh, we, of course, know last lesson, Zedekiah's sons were all slaughtered in front of him before his eyes were put out. Mm -hmm. And so this is an interesting thing, maybe something they did not... um, anticipate certainly a new thing uh, a son of David would reign again but he doesn't say he's going to reign the earth it's obvious that this has to do with a spiritual kingdom and a new kind of leader in fact I believe that he is being described in verse 21 of chapter 30 which says this their prince shall be one of themselves their ruler shall come out from their midst I will make him draw near and he shall approach me for who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord. It reminds me of John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Mm-hmm. Um, finally, under what God will do, number four, we have a new covenant. That's described in chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. 
I will write it, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more. So you have there four things that God will do in the future. Uh, A new start, a new era, a new king, and a new covenant. So as we come back to think about those two chapters that we just outlined together, I think one of the most important things that we see is the messianic prophecy that Jeremiah brings up. And there's two of them, I think, possibly three, but I think uh, when we get done with this, we'll probably wind up saying there's two for sure, and then probably just two. Uh, But we'll get to that third one uh, that's a little weird in a minute. The first one, though, is chapter 30. In verse 9 that we mentioned in the reading, uh, we kind of glossed over it. We want to just kind of give you the a uh, little bit deeper into it, though. Uh, verse 9 says, They shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Now, obviously, we're not talking about bringing David back from the dead here. We're referring to the righteous branch of David that was brought up in chapter 23 verses 5 and 6, and also pretty much the exact same paragraph in chapter 33, verses 14 through 16. Uh, So we have this idea that there's going to be someone from the Davidic line come in and be the king, uh, ruling uh, really in place of of God or for God, and that's brought out in chapter 30 and verse 21, where the prophecy here is, their prince shall be one of themselves, their ruler shall come out of their midst, I will make him draw near, and he shall approach me, for who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord. Yeah, there's only one answer to that. Right. Jesus Christ. Yeah, we know At the time, they they didn't know him as he was, but uh, Mm -hmm. the the Messiah is the only one who would dare of himself to approach him, the the true high priest. Right, yeah, the one mediator uh, between God and man that you can read about in 1 Timothy. Uh, that's the idea here. And, Drew, you mentioned this in the reading, uh, kind of the similarity that this has to John 1, where the Word becomes flesh yeah. and dwells among among us, among the people. Um, but even more specific than dwelling among mankind, we're talking about a Jew. Uh, the prince shall be one of themselves. Uh, what, what Jeremiah means here is the ruler is going to be a Jewish man. It's not going to be someone appointed by Babylon, not going to be someone appointed by another nation. Uh, this is going to be someone that's actually a Jewish man. He is going to be the ruler, uh, which obviously fits for Christ. And there's the application of, um, you know, Jesus was a Jewish man who lived according to the Jewish law. And uh, that fulfills this prophecy here uh, that's mentioned. And obviously just in the idea of this uh, Jewish Messiah well, it also reminds me of Moses' prophecy in Deuteronomy chapter 18 where the Lord will raise up a prophet like me, uh, one of your own, I think he says. Yeah, um, one of your own, he sure does. One of your own. So this fits in line with that. And, uh, and especially also, when you read John, uh, because you remember John 6, they say after he feeds everybody, they say, surely this is the prophet. That has yeah. come into the world, mm-hmm. and it's got that capital P on the prophet there to recognize right. that Jesus is being referred to as this kind of Messiah. Um, and then here's the last one, Drew. That's really we've already talked about a little bit today, uh, not on the podcast, but it's really weird. There's no better way to describe it. I don't guess other than just weird. But that's why we like it. Yeah, verse uh, chapter thirty-one, verse twenty-two of Jeremiah. Here's the end 
of that verse. It says, For the Lord has created a new thing on the earth. A woman encircles a man. What? Sounds I mean, like an R&B song. Yeah. A woman encircles a man. <laughs> I mean, I read that. Yeah. And I was thinking, what on earth? And immediate, I just wrote down verse 22 and then out next to it, instead of writing a note or something, I just put a huge question mark. I've got a question mark in my Bible, too. And and uh, I thought, well, I'll go to the commentaries to get some help on this one. And nope. then I read the commentaries and I thought, I need help. The I need commentary help. just confused me worse, almost. I mean, it gave some a lot yeah. of good I found some options, helpful things. It at least gave me a start on my own thinking. Um, I think maybe the parallelism is a clue which parallelism is a form of Hebrew poetry where lines kind of repeat one another or parallel one another. Sometimes they're synonymous, the same. Sometimes they are antithetical. They set forth two different cases. Here, perhaps there's some synonymous parallelism in the first line saying the Lord has created a new thing, and second, a woman encircles a man. Now, this would not be a messianic interpretation. No. But it would say, you know, uh, and we were talking about the language on this. Woman has to do with just woman, right? There's yeah. nothing unusual about that word. But the second word, having to do with the man, has particularly to do with a strong man. Yeah, I think you know. both words are, neither one of these words are what I expected to read here. Because uh, ESV and actually most other, tra- I'm trying to think of the one, I don't know why I didn't write this down. It was probably Young's I, I literal that has, uh, it doesn't say a woman encircles a man. It just says woman encircles a man. Because this word for woman is not the common word for it's like. like womankind. Yeah, it's like female. This is the word that's used for female. This is not the plain old. So in plain English, we a woman say women. Word. Yeah, the this would be. Of, the world of woman. Yeah, this is like it's the, the female of James gender. Brown. Oh yeah, man's world. It's not world. a man's world anymore. It's a woman's world. Yeah, it's the idea of females are going to encircle. Uh, I don't know what kind of translation. Strong men. It's like a surround or some other ones. Yeah. Uh, encompass or just plain old compass. I think so. Protect what, in the sense of protecting, hedging. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, and, so and this word. Uh, that's that's the literal thing. Is you have womankind hedging, protecting, enclosing strong men. Yeah, and that strong men, here's something even more on that. Because uh, I went digging around in my little dictionary to find, you know, to find this word. And just because I hardly remember the Hebrew alphabet, um, I was, you know, kind of struggling to find the word. I guess I was flipping through. And the words right before this one are, um, they all mean strong, mighty. In some places, it's actually just use of mighty warrior uh, for many of David's mighty men. So we're not just talking okay. about a strong dude here either. We're talking about like a mighty warrior that right. similar to one of David's mighty men. So, it, so it's irony. Yeah. It's not what you would expect, which could parallel the new thing. Because yes. a new thing is something that you weren't expecting. So that may be the meaning. That's a possible meaning and a probable meaning. Right. But there's an interesting interpretation, which is why you brought it up in the context of the Messiah, that this has to do with Mary and her son. Yeah, um, that's that's one of the many... What were there, five in the... In that red one of the commentaries today, commentary, we, yeah. we consulted, yeah, there were five, and those were the only two that I thought were I think so too. distinct and and you know real possibilities. And I'll here's why I like that possibility. There are several messianic prophecies that involve the Christ being born of a woman. Right. Uh, Genesis three fifteen, the very first one, uh, talks about the Messiah being the offspring of woman. Mm-hmm. And this was in, embedded in the curse to Eve, or in the curse to Satan, actually, the serpent. Yeah. Um, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the offspring of woman. 
And then there's Isaiah seven fourteen, mm-hmm. where uh, the Emmanuel will be born of a virgin. Yeah. So it's necessarily connected to the mother again in a miraculous way. This time the mother is a virgin. And so here, possibly, it's the same vein where you have, you know, in what case in the normal world do you find a woman protecting a strong man? Well, I guess a child is not a strong man yet, but a potentially strong man, you could say this is motherhood. This is an image of motherhood. If it is an image of motherhood then part of the new thing is going to be the Messiah. Yeah. I mean, that's one way to, to interpret it. I think it's really interesting, the most yeah. interesting interpretation, the one I like the most. Mm-hmm. But when I look objectively and I calm myself down, I think, you know, I think this is parallel to a new thing, and it's just, a, yeah. you know, really interesting poetry. Yeah, I think, I'd, all it is. I think I'd probably be with you there, uh, whether it's to something new or... Now, I did see this... Uh, it could be a lost proverb of peace. I thought that was pretty interesting. Kind of a phrase of a female protects a warrior. Uh, kind so of. So he like doesn't a, need to fight. To fight. Yeah, he's is not going to need to fight. Lover, not a fighter. Yeah. So peace is going to be coming. I mean, what exactly does it mean? Who knows? It could be that messianic uh, idea. This is why we brought it up here. But Drew, I think I'm with you. I think it's more of a, especially. Uh, from a Jewish mindset, you know the, I guess the uh, the rights that women had, um, and the way that the roles of men and women were viewed, they're very, you know, turned upside down here. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's a very uh, new thing, a very uh, stark contrast to what would have been the norm. Okay, and I'm just going to go ahead and move on to my next one, Drew. Sounds good. Yeah, let's let's keep it going. All right. Uh, the next thing is in chapter thirty-one and verse forty, and this is where this is actually the very last complete sentence of our text for today. Uh, speaking of the city of Jerusalem, Jeremiah says, "It shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore, forever." So we have this really, you know, this is here to to make the point of the assurance of the promise. Uh, for just how strong Jerusalem's going to be, you know, once they've uh, paid their dues, I guess, or endured their punishment. But, you know, I think a lot of people are going to pick up on uh, maybe, I mean, this is not a problem, but, you know, they might uh, pick up on something here that, well, Jerusalem's not going to be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. Well, what about A.D. 70? Mm-hmm. Because we right. know in A.D. 70... Uh, that Rome's going to come in, and they're going to at least destroy the temple. Uh, Jerusalem is going to be, I mean, it's going to be... Ransacked. Yeah, it's going to be ransacked. It was as bad, I would imagine it was as bad or worse than what Babylon did to Jerusalem. Yeah, it's the same imagery with the day of the Lord uh, there with Jerusalem, and you can read Jesus' warnings about that also. Very similar language uh, to what you have about this day that's coming with Babylon. Um and, you know, throughout some of these Old Testament prophets, and then certainly even since then, you know, Jerusalem's changed hands. It's been subject to war. Jerusalem has not been a place of total peace mm-hmm. um, since. So you think uh, Jeremiah got it wrong? Is what you I don't think so, no. <laughs> I don't think so. Um, Jer- well, the question trying is. trying to clarify here. Oh, yeah. Because Here's the thing. We know Jeremiah is not wrong. You seem to have a problem with this word forever. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, The thing is, we know Jeremiah is not wrong here, so what does he mean when he says anymore forever? And, Drew, uh, you had some good stuff on that word for eternity, or or not necessarily eternity here, that word for forever, that word. um, Well, yeah, it it appears, the reason your brain said eternity, it appears to mean eternity, but, uh, you know, that's how how we would interpret it, but it's used in a lot of places in the Old Testament um, in other ways. The word translated forever. Uh, For example, in the beginning of Ecclesiastes, in chapter 1, verse 4, Solomon, if I can get over there, 
Uh, Solomon said, the wind blows to the south. No, that's six. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. So is Solomon promoting the eternal nature of matter or the eternal nature of the world? That's not what he's saying. He's talking about an on-and-on process. And so this is this is not the only text where this word comes up, and it's a little perplexing. There are yep. a lot of examples where somebody's reign is said to last forever, or as you right. said here, the city of Jerusalem was going to be forever. And the the root to the word could be the Hebrew word olam, which means to hide. And the sense in context here could be hidden in the distant future, or hidden even in the distant past. There's several passages where the word is applied to the past. And I don't think anybody would say the past, you know, going back to a certain date is eternity. Mm-hmm. But in Deuteronomy 32, verse 7, and Proverbs chapter 22, verse 28, those are two examples that um, I found. The word is applied to the past. So yeah. you would apply it to the future in the same way that you would apply it to the past, which is simply to say in the in the unforeseeable future, in the distant future that is so far out there that it is hidden and unable to be seen. That's the sense of the word here. And in English, the closest that we can get to it is to say forever. And we use the word the same way today in colloquial English. You know, uh, how long did that class last? Oh, man, it was forever. Mm-hmm. Or I've been standing in this line forever. I've been waiting on this computer to update itself forever right you know uh some of us know that more than others <laughs> right that's the way the word is used here it's just simply saying that jerusalem's going to be firmly established not that it's going to be on earth for an eternity yeah i've got a good uh definition here in this hebrew lexicon it's actually for the word olam so i'm wondering this might be a different spelling but sound the same so it could be two different words but uh I've got here, it's the word that's used, it's actually the word that's used in the passage, uh, is this word, olam, forever. Yeah. And it's got our definition here, or one of the definitions is, long time, constancy, all time. Now here's the important part. In English, in English, the usage of eternity or eternal, but not to be understood in the philosophical sense. So it's exactly what we've been saying. Okay. It translates into English as this idea of eternity or eternal, but it's not to be understood as actually never-ending. Uh, it's never used. Uh, and it's got some usages here that I looked up. And uh, they're used um, in passages like in some places where it's used for all time or forever. David uses it in the Psalms in 61 verse 8. He says, I will ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day to day. Um, now, when he said that, was he talking about eternally praising God um, in heaven for all time? I don't think so. He's talking about his day-to-day activity of praying to God and of giving praise to God. So it's something he's going to do as long as he can, but it has to do with a confined period of time. Uh, and he's going to do it for as long as that period of time is there. And that also happens with other instances, like we had, you know, so-and-so reigned forever, or his reign yeah. was... There's one where, uh, oh, it's David again, and uh, there's a... Who is it? I can't remember. It's a certain ruler. Uh, he thinks that David's going to be his servant forever, is what the mm-hmm. text says. That it's an idea of, um, you know, constancy. forever. Yeah, constancy. Not just some little period of time like we've seen. Yeah. Through throughout Jeremiah's life where one kingdom rises up and then it topples. Then here comes another one and it's, you know, fallen in just a matter of years or months. Yeah. It's not like uh some of these kings Jehoiachin's reign of 3 months. Yeah. This is a solid future. Right. That he's outlining for them. Yeah, and I think that's the point here. It's not necessarily mm-hmm. literally saying uh, Jerusalem is going to stand forever. Its walls are never going to be torn down again. That's an incorrect interpretation, I think, of what's uh, being said here, and that's or at least what we get from the Hebrew language. Hey, let me bring something else up uh, right. just quickly because I don't want to take all of our application time away. But um, something that kind of perplexed me as I was reading the, through this 
was the constant references to Israel and Judah, but in particular the references to the northern kingdom of Israel. Whenever you read Ephraim or um, Jacob or Israel or something like that, that's a reference to the ten tribes that pulled away from Rehoboam when the kingdom divided. And uh, a great deal of this material is directed towards the northern kingdom. Now, historically, we know the northern kingdom was never really reformed or gained back in the way that the southern kingdom of Judah was, mm-hmm. which uh, where Jerusalem was. So the question is, you know, did is what's going on here again? We ask, it was Jeremiah wrong, or is something else at play? And I, I think it's obvious, you know, we believe that something else is at play. And um, there's there's a couple of things that you know, I want to respond to with that question about the northern kingdom and its appearance here. First of all, some estimates have it that 70,000 Jews were taken into captivity. 70,000 Jews. Some of those had to be members of the ten tribes that were taken into captivity with Assyria. Some of of those people had to have been left behind. Uh, We know that Josiah appealed to some folks up in the northern territories to come and celebrate the Passover with him after the time of the Assyrian uh, exile. So, um, you know, it may have just literally been an appeal to some folks who were living in those areas or who had lived in those areas. But then also, when you get to the New Testament, Israel and the church are one. And it's uh, Israel is often used just to refer in general to God's people specifically the church. One place where that's the case is Galatians six sixteen, where uh, the church is called the Israel of God. But um, I think a really important passage on the continuity between Israel and the church is Revelation chapter 12. And I know this is a very symbolic passage, but basically what you have here in this vision is a woman giving birth. And the the woman is clearly Israel because she's giving birth to the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus. And the dragon, or Satan, is standing in front of her, ready to consume the child as soon as he is born. Which, you know, shows the, the battle that had been going on for all ages between the devil and Christ. So she gives birth, and the child is caught up to God. Now again, here's another mother-son imagery of the Messiah, going back to a previous thing that we were talking about that I hadn't thought of until just now. But, you know, I have this woman, Israel, gives birth to the Christ. Christ escapes. And then the woman flees into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, where she's to be nourished for uh, 1,260 days. And then you find her in the wilderness uh, being um, tormented by the devil uh, the serpent in the wilderness, and uh, she's being nourished by God there for a time and times and half time. Now, this woman seems to morph from an image of Israel to an image of the church. Mm. And that's what I want people to study and look at in Revelation 12. That has always intrigued me, or at least from the time I discovered that to now, it has intrigued me how the idea of Israel, the old covenant people, can also at the same time be the church, the new covenant people. But when we get to heaven, just to put it simply, when we get to heaven, we're going to sit down at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God's old covenant people are going to be one and the same with God's new covenant people. We are the Israel of God. So that may be the meaning whenever you read about the northern kingdom here as well, that God is lumping his people all together. New covenant, old covenant, Divided kingdom, united kingdom. There's a lot of talk about the kingdom uniting and, and those kinds of things as part of this future hope as well. Yeah. So, I don't know. It's just something to think about. And maybe I've confused our listeners. But for me, knowing what happened to the actual ten tribes that are often referred to as the lost ten tribes of Israel, I think it's something to bring up yeah. to think about here. I think so too, for sure. Uh, especially considering what Paul says about Israel, kind of gives you an idea about a new Israel. Which you know we're talking about all, all these new things here, a new day, a new king, a new this and a new that. 
you know, the church is referred to, and I'm looking through Romans right now. I think that was where it is. I'm in Romans, Romans 11. Nine. Oh, 9. Okay, that's why I'm not yeah. seeing it. I'm in 11. Uh, where he talks about not all who are of Israel are Israel, and he's talking about the real. Yeah, here it is. 9-6. Yeah, yeah, it's looking at me right in the face. Uh, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And he goes through and he talks about the new Israel that we have is one that's, you know, really is going to be the church. So I think that goes along with your Revelation 12. Um, Israel, you yeah. know, the woman that represents Israel giving birth to Christ in the sense of the tribe of Judah uh, brings Christ in the world. And then um, certainly there's a change to a new era where the new Israel is the church. Yeah, speaking of that new era, hang on, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to make it practical. saved all of our third segment for the new covenant because i think that's the most applicable part of this to us today in the church you know uh when the writer of the book of hebrews was appealing to jewish christians not to turn back against christ to their old way of life he went to jeremiah chapter 31 the hebrew part of the hebrew scriptures and he cited verses 31 through 34 to tell them that they are now in the Christian age a part of a new and better covenant uh, enacted on better promises. I'm thinking about Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. Based on what he read in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, he believed that the old covenant was obsolete, waxing old, ready to vanish away, and that it was replaced by a new and better covenant. And so... uh, I think that this is the most practical place that we could park at in the final segment of this uh, this podcast. Now, as we look at this, I'm just going to walk through what he's saying here and make, um, I've got like five points here that I think we could make to pull out of this and interpret this the way it is in the light of Hebrews 8. And a lot of what I'm saying comes from what I learned from Hebrews 8. So keep that in mind as we go through this. And it starts, verse 31, saying, Behold, the days are coming. So the first thing is, this is a future covenant, not pertaining to the present time for Jeremiah. The days are coming. This is in the latter days, to use the language of Hebrews chapter 1. And the Uh, language that was used at the end of chapter 30, where it says, In the latter days you will understand. uh, Right, right. And to use Joel's language in Joel Mm -hmm. 2, to use Peter's language in Acts chapter 2, in reference to the establishment of the church and the establishment of the new co- the new covenant, the latter days were not, by the way, in 1830 when Joseph Smith uh, dis- supposedly discovered yeah. those uh, tablets right. and founded the Mormon Church. Uh, the latter days are not yet to come in some premillennial future. The latter days we're in the middle of them, and they started with Christ, and that is made plain by Peter in Acts chapter two and by the writer of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1. Now, as you read on, he says, When when the days these days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. The second point I want to make about this covenant is that it is unlike the first and it is unlike the first because there was fault in the first, not on God's side, but on the side of the Israelites. Right. And this is the language used by Hebrews 8, 6, and 7. Uh, he says something like, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no place for a second covenant. Right. Uh, so they broke it, as the writer, uh, as Jeremiah puts it here, they cut, they broke God's covenant, so... They could not live by it. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, it was at fault. It wasn't at fault because of God. But God looks at a covenant as two parties, not just himself. And so if they broke it, then the covenant has a fault. 
Right. Uh, the second one is going to be without fault for reasons that we'll see as we read on. Look at verse 33 to get this third point here. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. You see the contrast. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So the third point to make here is that this particular covenant will be written on the hearts of man versus on the stone tablets of Moses. Right. So Moses' law relied upon outward compulsion. Do this or you'll be stoned to death. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, here they are written on the, the law, the, the stone tablets, obey or perish. Uh, there were external consequences, and the yeah. law itself was external. And um, the contrast here, and it's a little hard really to break out the nuances of everything, but I think basically what we're looking at here is an inward motivation to obey the law, which is more successful than this outward compulsion that they had. And they had to have that outward compulsion because Christ had not come yet. The inward motivation, as I see it, which writes the law in your heart, is the cross, and I get that from a number of passages, such as Titus 2, 11 and 12. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. So what he's saying here is God's grace, which is seen through the cross, trains us to obey the law. Right. And that's something inside of us that's written on our hearts. Yeah, I think you. I think a really good way to um, summarize that is something that you've already said: is that the idea of the external and the internal. And the first thing that I thought of is where Paul says, "The love of Christ compels us." Yeah, that, that's that, another good passage. Yeah, yeah, that is what gets us. You know, it's not the, not so much of the. Um, I guess uh, what I'm looking for: anxious fear. The slavery of fear, but the yeah. freedom of grace. Yeah. And that's yeah. all of Paul is the freedom that we now have. And I think of, you know, I think the Sermon on the Mount serves as the, uh, I guess, almost the case example for what we're saying here. Because all through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not murder. But then on top of that, he says, But I'm saying to you, anyone that's angry with his brother is liable to judgment. He does the same thing with adultery. He says, You know, you said that. Uh, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everybody who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery there in his heart. It's that idea of uh, taking the law, and like you said, it's not that the law was wrong on God's end, because has the law really changed? You know, the law was fulfilled. Jesus even said, don't think I came to abolish the old law. Um, truly, I say to you that not a jot or a tittle will pass away until all is accomplished. But what he says is, I've come to fulfill them. And he fulfills all of that. You know, the ideas of sacrifices and those things that we don't have anymore today, they weren't just abolished and just, hey, this was a bad idea. We're not going to do this anymore. They were completely fulfilled um, to the highest meaning they could possibly have in Christ. And now it's we're not looking so much as to that letter of the law, like you mentioned. It's the It's the heart. It's what it's something to where we can actually follow him with our whole lives. You know that living sacrifice that mm-hmm. we now are. Yeah, we don't give and an course, animal. It's us. Of course, we have to be careful. Make sure people understand that we know that there is a law to follow under the new covenant. But it's it's all about what motivates you or the reasons behind your obedience to that law. Right, like Paul mentions with the, should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? I thought about that passage, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. you know, why should we who have died to sin continue any longer therein? Yeah. Why why are we going to do that? Okay, the clock is merciless here. Um, Oh, man. Let's go to number four uh, about this new covenant, and it is not, well, I need it, let me read what it says here, Okay. After he says he's going to write it on their hearts, verse 34 says, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. So here is the distinction as I draw it out lengthily for number four. Is that a word, lengthily? lengthily. It is now. 
Okay. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a better one. That's, that's, that's the best I got. Yeah. Under the Old Covenant, how did people get into the Old Covenant? Born into it or... Oh, great. I don't know the word for this. Proselytized. Proselytized. But the majority of them were born into it. You are a descendant of Abraham. You're automatically a member of the Old Covenant. Right. And then parents have to do what Deuteronomy 6 commands, keep the law before their children when they rise up, when they lie down, when they sit in their house, when they walk by the way. They've got to constantly be teaching them about who Jehovah is, what he has done for Israel, uh, who, yeah. what his nature is and what he's like so that mm-hmm. they can gradually throughout their lives in covenant develop a relationship with God. Yeah. So they had to say to their brother and to their neighbor, know the Lord because when you're born you know nothing. Mm-hmm. Now the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant is you're taught into the new covenant. You're taught the gospel and this is, we understand we're talking about fundamentals here. But you learn the gospel, and then you obey the gospel. Acts 2.41, those who received his word uh, were baptized, and there were added that day unto them yeah. 3,000 souls. So you receive the word, and you're taught, you know the Lord, and then you become a member of the new covenant. There's a big difference there. Mm-hmm. And so this isn't to say that we don't learn and teach within the church because we already know it all. Yeah, It's to say that we desire a relationship with God, know Him in that sense. Yeah, I think that's what I was going to bring up, yeah. is that word for know isn't just knowledge. It's that idea of the relationship You know, that's used all over the Old Testament, similar to a husband and wife. They know each other. Um, you know, and I think we have the... Uh, you know, a level of intimacy is what we're looking for, a yeah. deep relationship. And that's what we're looking at because certainly we know there are teachers in the church. First Corinthians 12 talk about, Paul says, you know, God has appointed teachers in the church. And he also mentions prophets yeah, and right. other gifts there in that. Uh, but we'll let, I'll let you move on to number five. I know we're Okay, I, w- I wish we could talk. We, yeah, we said this about this, that, that there are like 30 sermons in these two chapters. Oh, yeah. I mean, I really have written down a number of outlines that we're not even bringing up. Yeah. Um, this, is, this is really rich material. But the fifth thing, and, and I didn't put these into little simple propositions today. I'd just rather let the words of the text speak for themselves. But number five is this beautiful ending to this section where the Lord says in the New Covenant, I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sin no more. Now, That's the most that important was, part for us, I guess. Yeah. People want to close on. Yeah, it is the most important part. And so, you know, there's a lot to be said here, though. Yeah. First of all, it, of course, talks about forgiveness through Jesus Christ in the New Covenant. And somebody looks at that and they say, okay, so does that mean that this was not available under the Old Covenant? Mm-hmm. Were people not forgiven under the Old Covenant? And I think the answer to that quickly is that that forgiveness was anticipated in the Old Covenant, but it wasn't actualized until the cross. Meaning those people under the Old Covenant who took steps towards forgiveness by sacrificing animals and following the law, they were forgiven... They were actually forgiven, but they were actually forgiven when Jesus was crucified on the cross. Right. So their forgiveness was anticipated. And I'm thinking here of Romans 3, 24 through 26, and Hebrews chapter 9, which tells us that because of the cross, the sins committed under the first covenant were were forgiven. Right. Um, you know, another the question is, does God completely forget my sin, you know, I will remember them no more. And, um, you know, how can he be omniscient if he forgets something? Let's not, you know, get that technical with it because we understand what he's saying here. I will forgive their sins and treat them as if they had never committed them. Right. This isn't some theological statement about God's erasing his memory or something like that. Yeah. It's a parallel statement to, I will forgive their iniquities. It will be as if God no longer remembers them. Of course, he knows you all the way inside and out, past, present, and future. But um, he is willing to forgive because of what he's planning to do through this one, this king, this new king of the new covenant. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, 
Paul talking about Adam and Christ and comparing the two, saying Adam brought death to all men, and then Christ brings salvation to all men. Old covenant, yeah. new covenant. You know, the same way that the fall applies to mankind, uh, Christ's sacrifice for everybody applies to mankind. Right. Now, I know we're going to go over time a little bit today, but I think it's okay. I, You know, it's the last podcast on Jeremiah, and we always, sometimes we forget to do this, but yep. especially on the one episode things. Yeah. Like uh, next time, yeah, I think we're planning that. to do just one, one book and one episode. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I like to do, I like to talk a little bit about, you know, our general impressions of the book, and what we thought about it, what we liked, what we didn't like. Yeah. You know, I always hesitate to say I don't like something about a book of the Bible. I like all the books of the Bible, but some of them I like more than others. Yeah. You know, with John, we were both just like, this is, you know, top five favorite books of the Bible, definitely. When it comes to Jeremiah, what did you think about it as as a book? Uh, Well, I mean, this is going to be one I'm, I mean, I'm not happy that we're done studying it. We'll put it that way. Uh, I really liked it. Uh, I enjoyed reading it. I thought it was there's a lot of really cool stuff in here that I didn't realize was in here. Um, the object lessons, the object lessons, the object lessons. They really stick out in my mind. Yeah, I thought that was really neat. Just Jeremiah as a whole. You know, it's think gritty things are popular now. Like all these movies and stuff they're making on superhero reboots are all gritty. Jeremiah is very gritty. You know, mm-hmm. it's very uh, deals with a lot of the problems uh, that people face. You know, it's not just sun, sunshine and rainbows, um, and really not many biblical stories are. I don't guess. Um, you know, they all have this element of here we have uh, not only the judgment that's coming for the bad things that Judah has done. Um, and we talked about how bad a lot of those things were. You know, this is not rated G, I guess. The book's definitely mm. not rated G. No, no. And Jeremiah's, you know, I think what my notes for further study here is going to be to read Lamentations yeah. uh, to get a deeper insight into Jeremiah's sorrow. And this will be the last thing I say, uh, but God's sorrow was another big thing that I took away from um Jeremiah. Yeah, and we we saw that we didn't get to dwell on it a whole lot in these two yeah. chapters. That's a whole other layer to these. Mm-hmm. God's sorrow and his desire for people to come back. Um, I definitely learned a lot more about God through this book. And for that, I'm thankful. And I will return to it time and time again um, for those lessons more, I guess, than any other. Mm-hmm. is the nature of God. I was very encouraged about my God through the reading of Jeremiah. I will say, you know, in terms of what, you know, I didn't like so much, the organization was a real challenge for a teacher. Yeah, it you was know, tough. I don't know, for a reader as well, but definitely to teach it, and this is why it isn't taught that often, mm-hmm. is you have to work out. I You cannot go, okay, this morning, chapter 1, verse 1, and then, you know, we'll see how far we get, yeah. you know. And uh, especially after, like, what is it, chapter 7 or so, everything starts scattering out. And it's not, you know, it's it was Jeremiah's plan. may have had something to do with Jehoiakim burning his first scroll and the way that it was written under the duress. And, you know, there's patched together on the scroll. I don't know. Maybe it was his plan, and there's some thematic... Yeah order that we haven't discovered yet and be yeah. interesting to go back over and see if we could discover that but I've, I've looked at a lot of outlines of the book of jeremiah and it just appears that god's first concern when it comes to this book was not that we get a good preacher outline yeah. that wasn't written for that purpose right and the theme is obvious you know uh it's repeated so many times and in every mm-hmm. story we've had that theme it's all um, about the repentance or the call to repentance, um, Israel's refusal to repent, uh, God's love and God's grace, and ultimately God's wrath. Yeah. I mean, that's if I it. had to sum it up. And then hope afterwards. Yeah. 
hope afterwards. So the, we we were glad that we could end on a message of hope. And, uh, boy, I, I'm really glad that we did this. Yeah. Um, looking forward. I won't announce our next book, but we do plan a one-episode book for the next episode. So I hope that you'll continue to join us and send us that feedback through email, dkaiser at arcoc.com or akingsley at arcoc.com. Follow us on Twitter, The 66 Podcast, or look us up on Facebook. We have a Facebook page now. So every time an episode goes up, you'll be able to learn about it that way. And we have a website, the66.net. 66 is a number. And uh, we're just uh, really glad that you joined us. Uh, Keep following us. We'll keep plugging away and doing our best at chipping away at this. uh, Like I said, we have nothing to do afterwards. So uh, we may stretch it out sometimes. But uh, we're glad you've stuck with us. And we hope that you join us next week. Thank you.